Darmstadt on air number 20. Singleton in Darmstadt again. Welcome to Darmstadt on air. I'm Thomas Schäfer from the Darmstadt Summer Course team, and I have the pleasure of introducing episode number 20 of our podcast. Since the summer of 2020, my colleagues and I at the International Music Institute in Darmstadt have been publishing a series of audio podcasts with conversations on music and related topics under the title Darmstadt on Air. As our festival and academy, the Darmstadt Summer Course, was postponed for one year to 2021, we wanted to keep some of the discussions going and share them with our community. During the last month, there was a little gap in our Darmstadt on Air series, but there is a lot in the air right now. We are preparing this year's festival, which is going to take a quite special shape with a mix of live and online formats. For this episode of Darmstadt on Air, we will hear an interview with composer Alvin Singleton, conducted by historical musicologist Harold Kisido and composer George Lewis on July 19, 2021. In 1972, Singleton's work Arguru II for cello was the first ever to be performed by a black composer at the Darmstadt Summer Course. Two years later, 1974, his B Natural for three string instruments received the renowned Kranistein Music Prize. In this podcast, Singleton talks about his early listening experiences and music studies during his formative years in Brooklyn, New York, his graduate work in composition at Yale University with Mel Powell and Yehudi Weiner, and his activity as the founder of Yale's Black Music Students' Union. Singleton also discusses his 14-year sojourn in Italy and Austria, his rich experiences at the Darmstadt Summer Course, where he collaborated with cellist Siegfried Palm and others, and he tells us about the significance of improvisation and cultural intermixture in his life and work. Singleton's Again for Chamber Orchestra which won the 1979 Musik Protocol Composition Prize in Graz, will be performed at the Darmstadt Summer Course opening concert on July 31, 2021, by Ensemble Modern, conducted by Enno Poppe. From the Darmstadt archives, we will hear Singleton discussing again at the Darmstadt Kompositionsstudio in 1979, chaired by Brian Fernehau, as well as excerpts of several other Singleton compositions. At Nunc, for alto flute, bass clarinet and double bass, B natural, and Mestizo II for orchestra from a rare recording of its 1970 premiere by the Yale Symphony Orchestra. We hope you enjoy listening. Hi, I'm Haruki Sidu, and I'm here with Alvin Singleton and George Lewis. And we're going to talk about Alvin Singleton's life experiences, his music and his aesthetics. Alvin, I'd like to begin by asking you, what were your early listening experiences? My early listening experiences was mainly improvised music, specifically jazz. I grew up in a, a neighborhood where there were a lot of jazz musicians, where a lot of jazz musicians lived. And I was attracted to the fact that they would play a familiar tune and then they'd improvise on that tune. 
And I was just fascinated by what came after that. It was just like another piece. So that's my listening experiences. My classical music listening experience didn't come till much later. My parents had a record collection, but it was by singers and bands of their generation, such as Nat King Cole. They had a lot of Nat King Cole. And my, my dad listened to a lot of spirituals. In fact, he himself would sing a spiritual on Sunday morning just before he was, went to church. Wow, I remember your dad. I met him much later, of course. And you, and you were, this is in Brooklyn? Yes. So, Elvin, you said you came to classical music relatively late in your life. Um, how old were you when you came to classical music? Oh, I was in high school. I didn't know anybody who listened to classical music. My parents had a recording of Mozart's Einkleine Musik. Also, I was ordered to study piano. I say ordered. <laughs> My mother said that I had to study piano because we had been given an upright piano by a woman from our church. And so I, I had piano lessons. I don't think I was pretty good. I don't think I was very good at it, but I continued as long as I could. You ended up uh, liking it or what? No, what happened that I, I wound up changing notes and pieces that were well-established. <laughs> like I had, a, I had a, a German teacher in college. She was from Munich. Ilse Wunsch was her name. Hmm. And when I would play Bach for her, she would sigh. And each time I'd begin the piece again, she would sigh again. And I said, Miss Wunsch, I can't get through the piece when you're sighing all the time. And she said, <laughs> you have to understand, Mr. Singleton, I grew up with this music and I cannot stand to hear it butchered. <laughs> so I, you know, I didn't take it personally. I mean, so, and that's the way it was. And later on, you know, when I was playing jazz piano, I had my own ensemble and, uh, The saxophone player, lead saxophone player, well, there were only five of us, uh, accused me of playing the wrong notes in my own tune. <laughs> so I guess that was the beginning of my composing career. This is, how old were you when you were doing this? Oh, I, I must have been in high school or... So this would have been in the 60s, right? In high, or late, or uh, what? You were born in 1940, so this is like yeah. 1955. I, like Charlie Parker I, had just and died. I, I, I graduated from high school in 59. At that point, I had decided already, or had an inkling or something, I had a feeling about continuing my studies. But also, in the meantime, I did study accounting. Oh, And this was at the recommendation, in quotes, of my parents. They were concerned about my making a living and having a family and supporting a family, you know, the usual things. So that's what I did. I, I studied accounting. And in the meantime, I got, a, I got a job for an accounting firm. And I was studying accounting at night and working in the day. And also my jazz ensemble was still alive. And we'd, we'd rehearse now and then. That's how it happened. 
So when you worked for this accounting firm, um, you were the only black person working for that firm, right? Oh, that didn't occur to me. Yes, you're right. <laughs> and, you're right. and you once you once said that you hated being the token black person. And I was wondering how that experience, how did that trans experience translate into your career as a black composer in a predominantly white classical or contemporary music world? Well, being the only being, being the only black person at the accounting firm, it didn't bother me at all because I guess I was not old enough, experienced enough to realize what was going on. I mean, the, the neighborhood that I grew up in was African American. So I I was on on top of the world in that in that sense. I didn't have anything to compare it to. It's only when I had to travel to Manhattan for work that I would notice these things. And I remember in at the accounting firm. When I was there, I had just read James Baldwin's Go Tell It on a Mountain. And I remember telling the people in the department that I worked in about this book. And nobody knew it. And nobody knew who James Baldwin was. Wow. So then the realization seeped in that not only was I the only Black person there, I was the only Black person with any kind of history. I'm wondering, because what Harold said earlier about, um, I mean, maybe that's a big leap, like from being a Black composer in a predominantly white classical music world. I'd like to hear more about that. But I'm trying to figure out how you got to Yale, where I met you, because you're in high school and you didn't go there as an undergraduate, right? Did you go to Yale? Right, right. No, so what did no. you do? How did you, what was your undergraduate career like? Where did you do that? When I graduated from high school, I had a feeling then that I wanted to continue in music, but I was not sure how. And I met a someone, a guy that, a jazz musician, who really liked what I did, what I played at the piano, and what I had been writing. And he said to me, you ought to study harmony and counterpoint. And so he said, well, why don't you go look at New York College of Music? New York College of Music was a kind of a music conservatory. It was up on the east side of New York in the 80s. I registered there. I had to take a couple of exams, one of which was piano. And I remember, I remember very clearly there were about three or four people in the room, professors there, to listen to me. And one was the pianist that I re referred to before, Ilse Wunsch. Oh, my. <laughs> and what I what I what I played for my entrance was How High the Moon. <laughs> I played that and I improvised. And they looked at each other in a, with amazement. I think it was only because they had no idea what this was. Wow. But I did get in and I my teacher became Ilse Wunsch. That's an amazing story. I wanted to ask you something about Yale. So um, when you went to Yale, you um, you were one of the people who founded the Black Music Students Union. And I wanted to ask you, can you talk about your demands and the activities associated with the union you, you co-founded? Well, at Yale, there were only, in the music school, the music school is only a um, graduate school. There were only four Black students. We got together one day and had a discussion about of all the areas that Black people 
are not known for, music is not one of them. So how is it in this music school that there are only four blacks? So we got together and we start to meet and we wrote a letter to the dean raising this question. And this dean at the time was very liberal, in quotes. <laughs> he said, well, what, what can we do about it? I said, we should recruit students, black students for the school. He suggested that we tell him where we should go to recruit students and that they would pay for it. So he put the ball in our court and we did, we divided, there were four of us. So we divided in two groups of two and we, we went to black schools and uh, recruitment took place. We were successful. We got a couple of people only. And then it was very interesting that a lot of people did not even want to deal with it. They didn't even want to come to Yale. I don't know. I wasn't sure why, but they were not impressed as impressed with going to Yale as my parents were when I was accepted. So I'd wind up talking about careers in general. I gave them alternatives and that was the best thing. They enjoyed that more than coming to Yale. Where did you go? Which which colleges oh, did you go to? What new? Oh, we went to Morehouse here in Atlanta. Being at Morehouse, which is across the street from Spelman, they would join in. Then we went to went to New Orleans, went to uh, Baton Rouge Southern University, which is a big oh man, it's a big university. They got they got a marching band that's out of this world. I mean, we we went to white schools as well, which was amazing that everybody would show up. <laughs> yeah. mm. Not only black students, but white students as well. Everybody wanted a piece of this action. And at the same time, we started a school at Yale for kids. This was problematic for the dean, starting a school within a school. Well, why? I don't get that. Well, because the school basically was for graduate students people here who had a knowledge of things already. And we had a basically a Saturday school for kids, piano lessons, and songs, and it didn't really work with their understanding of what the Yale School of Music was about. And the reason we gave them for starting the school is that the only library, the people in the, in the, in the community could not use that, that library. And if we had that school on Saturdays, we got the library open for outsiders or people in the neighborhoods. Hmm. Well, that already sounds like something, at least in my time there, because we did overlap, that they were not too happy about. The idea of uh, Black people coming onto the campus and doing things. Oh, yeah. No, and that, that's true. That's very true. Did, did your activities also um, lead to changes <laughs> in terms of the composition of the faculty? Well, we, we complained that they, there was no black faculty and they, they asked us to recommend people, give them a list. And so we did. And I remember they invited Carmen Moore for one semester to teach black music. And I remember they invited Hall Overton too. I studied with him eventually. And that was, as far as faculty is concerned, that was it. You know, we, we wanted we wanted some kind of permanent uh, gesture in that regard. And uh, so what they did, 
which they hired Willie Ruff. George, you remember him? Oh, of course. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, so they gave me, he, he had a full-time job. And, and he did a lot of interesting things. He started yeah. that, he got money to start that Duke Ellington Fellowship. That was my first yeah. year at Yale, I guess, in the fall of 69. Uh, and I guess you were already there as a graduate student. Was that right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. By that time, my first year theory instructor, because I thought I was going to be a music, I had no idea really, but somehow being a music major seemed attractive for some odd reason. And so Lazarus Equime was my first year theory instructor. Did you meet him at all? You know, I... I he was, he's Nigerian, was he? Yeah. Lazarus Equime, yeah, the Nigerian musicologist and composer. He was... A, oh, yeah. He yeah. was... A, you didn't meet him, though. Oh, yes, I did. He, I think he was in the graduate school, wasn't he? Well, I wasn't. He taught first-year theory. Oh, yeah, well... Actually, I, it wasn't I, even first-year theory. It was like introduction to first-year theory to see if you were any good to actually go into first-year theory. Yeah, well, actually, I think he was in the Department of Music working on a PhD, and, and I know people in that department, students in that department would teach undergraduate courses. So I would have taken this class in 1969. Well, so. anyway, you know, that, that you know, <laughs> it just occurred to me, he gave me my first introduction to Fufu. I remember that? eating, I remember eating at his house. They had this kind of a mixture of, I don't know, vegetables and soup-like, and they had this dough which was fufu that you would boil it and put it in that substance and eat it. And I remember it was, it was delicious. That's very interesting because, you know, because uh, so apparently he was Nigerian because fufu, that's Ghanaian. Oh, really? Oh, yes. Wow. It's, it's a very starch, you know, like, like very starchy type of food. Yeah. Who did you study with at, at Yale? Yale? Yeah. Well, I began studying with Mel Powell. Mel Powell interests me very much. In fact, when I was looking where I should, to go for graduate school or who I should study with, I was interested in composers who not only wrote classical music, but had some kind of experience in improvisation or in jazz. So I found Gunther Schuller and I found Mel Powell and Hall Overton. Gunther Schuller taught at Yale at one point. Mel Powell was still at Yale. And um, Hall Overton was teaching at Juilliard, plus he taught privately in his own studio in, in, in New York. So when I applied to Yale and was accepted, I went there and I requested that I work with Mel Powell, not knowing that this was his last year at the School of Music because he had just been hired by CalArts oh. in California, which was very new then. So I worked with Mel Powell for one year. And this was brilliant. The man is fantastic. You know, he was a jazz pianist with Benny Goodman for a long time. He didn't teach jazz. He did, in fact, he never even talked about jazz. He talked about music. He was kind of a philosopher. In fact, my very first lesson with Mel Powell began with the question, what can I do for you? That really knocked me off my feet because at that point, I'd been so used to been given assignments to do, but he... He wanted to know what my problems were. What can he do for me? So I remember my response was that I would need a week to think about it, and then I'd come back and tell him. So I did. I went through all of the stuff that I had, had done, had written, and I came back and told him that 
At this point, I think the only thing I need to do is to to write. He agreed, and he said that's good because you can just start right now. Because if you we we we're wasting time, you know, meeting all the time. So I would write pieces and did show him pieces. And then when he left, I began to work with Yehudi Weiner, which was a whole different thing. Weiner would just look at my music, and and when when my a piece of mine was on a program, he was there. And he would write a little essay on what he heard and give it to me, and that was that was so helpful. And then with Gunther Schuler, I worked with him one summer at Tanglewood. Gunther Schuler praised Mel Powell. He said to me, "Mel Powell used to accept students at Yale that he didn't think had any talent, but he said after time." These students turn out to be the best composers. <laughs> so, and then he asked, "What does Mel Powell do?" And I, I just told him what I, the story I just told you yesterday. What can I do for you? And I think the best thing to sum it up was that he leaves you alone. Well, I've always been amazed at Mel Powell's transition or conversion. He was in that movie. I forget the name of it with Louis Armstrong and Danny yeah. Kaye. Yeah. Where he was like uh, playing the piano, and he looked like he was set to be like a matinee idol or something. Uh-huh. And then suddenly he decided he didn't want to do that, and he started composing. I think that was quite a turn, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then he he started working on electronic music, and I remember one of the things he he insisted that I do was take the electronic music classes, and I did not want to do that. I told him I would not be writing electronic music. And he said, "It's not that reason I want you to study there." He said, "It improves your ear," and he was really right. I mean, I spent I spent hours in the studio creating what ten seconds of musical, and boy, it it, it really it really it, it opens the ear up. You can distinguish so much in the sound. Do you have any of that stuff around? No, not really. Yeah, very no, interesting to no, hear this. No, it's, it wasn't something that I recorded and performed in a concert. But I, I would do it, record it, and he'd listen to it, and I'd talk about it. Because at that time, you know, there were no synthesizers. We would splice and put things together in the studio and then play it back, and you get... Ah. <laughs> <laughs> now, when I met you, and this is a very odd story that's been told before, and it's become... To me, it's attained the status of myth, but uh, I still remember it as a founding myth for a certain period in my life. I was an undergraduate, a freshman at Yale, and my roommate was uh, Miles Hoffman, who turned out to make uh, quite the career as violinist, violist, and author, who's still around. And I'm actually writing a piece in his honor uh, for, for premiering next year. And we were roommates and, you know, he introduced me to Yasha Heifetz and I introduced him to John Coltrane. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so he was playing in the Yale Symphony. And one day, I guess this was what, probably in 1972, I think that's the date of this. He comes and he says, there's this very interesting, I'm not sure he said interesting. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> there's this piece, you should come and hear it. <laughs> I said, okay. And I went to hear it. You know, I went to hear it. I tried to go to the Yale Symphony 
when I could, but he, you know, when, when Mike said I should come and hear this, I said, well, I better come and hear it. So I heard it with this crazy wild piece with all kinds of stuff in it. And afterwards, well, the composer came out and took a bow. And I saw this black guy come out and take a bow. I said, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to meet this guy who composed this piece, this black guy who wrote this piece. Because I don't know, really, my impression of, I hadn't really connected like composing with composers. I connect or, or classical music with, especially not living composers and living black composers. I've never heard of that. You know, my, I, didn't go, I didn't come up in a classical music background either. So I had to meet this guy and it was you. And the piece was called Mestizo Two, And I remember that from way back in 72. And as Harold researched, it was performed at a concert commemorating the 75th anniversary of Yale School of Music. I mean, a lot of that piece just went by me, but just the idea that you would compose it. And I guess we've known each other since that time. So I was intrigued by, by its title and its, its meaning, um, you know, Mestizo, Mestizo too. And I was wondering, you know, this idea of cultural intermixture, hybridity, a blending of, you know, different musical tradition and cultures. How important has that been for you as a composer in your work? Oh, it's been very important. In fact, the, the idea came from the fact of, well, the mixture, as you say. And, and, and of course, I was looking for a word that would encapsulize this idea, the mixture. Of course, mestizo was a word that a lot of people didn't know, which pleased me very much because a lot of my titles are, uh, are discovered that way. Um, mestizo, number one, is a classical music piece with the idea of of a big band playing a classic, classical written classical written piece. And number two is a piece that has improvisation for a symphony orchestra. And that idea intrigued me. And to put it even further, I always wondered why is it that classical music professionals or classical music musicians did not know how to improvise? So I thought of ways in which would help them through that. And I had certain things within the score that would encourage the performance through improvisation. And in that piece, everybody improvises, except the string players. The string players are just holding the one chord from the beginning to the end. So they're kind of like background sound, drone. And I thought the piece was really very successful in that Listening to the people, all, everybody improvising at the same time created a sound that I had only imagined in a dream with everybody playing at the same time in such a way that it sounds like it's being made up at the moment, which is the essence of improvisation.
I was just, uh, you know, I was just wondering how, you know, how willing or how reluctant were classically trained musicians to, you know, utilize improvisation in your pieces. Well, the thing is, is that I discovered along the along the way that when you want people with no experience in improvisation to improvise, you have to give them ways in which they can approach it. You can't just say, here's material, improvise. They don't know how to do that. In fact, I don't even know if I would know how to do it. So you give them a handle and it'll work out. Because all, all of my, not all of my pieces, but a lot of my pieces have that to this day. And once a person gets it or gets the kind of material they can improvise upon, I always give them the option of improvising on a particular material or just repetition. Keep repeating that. And I have to make that that they have to repeat interesting enough that it's the puzzlement is gone. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It does. It makes a lot of sense. But it seems to me also that a, a lot of that mestizo attitude in a way, maybe that's something that could be thought of as emblematic of your career. I mean, the diversity of cultural reference, for example. I mean, Harold was about to ask you, and I, maybe I'll just ask, about going to Rome and going to Europe. I mean, what happened there? Why did you do that, first of all? You graduated and, and then you went to Europe? That was it? How did that happen? Well, it's, you know, to, to continue the story of my cultural mixture interests, I wanted to learn another culture. And I figured out at the time that if I applied for a Fulbright and get it, then this will give me that opportunity. And I did. I went to Italy and it was totally different, which I expected it to be, but not that different. <laughs> I was to study with Goffredo Petrassi, one of Italy's great composers, and we would have lessons, but they were not composition lessons. They were lessons in orchestration which disappointed me because I had just graduated and we, we did all of that. But when you looked at his music, at least his orchestral music, it was so well orchestrated. So he would give us piano assignments like Chopin and Schoenberg and, and have us orchestrate that. And, you know, that was helpful to a point, but there were no composition lessons. Hmm. But I did learn from the culture. I went to concerts and at that time, I also was playing double bass, which very few people know about, because when I was at Yale, there was a, I was friends with a, a, a law student who played bass. He had a wooden bass. And when he was ready to graduate, he was going to give that up and he wanted to sell his bass. And so I bought it. In fact, Gary Codd, a famous bassist, was teaching at Yale at that time. And I went to him. I, I asked him if I bought this bass, would you teach me? He said, oh, yeah, sure. So he, he didn't teach me directly. He gave me his, you know, his first student. And I began to play on that. But my idea of playing double bass was not to become a performer, but to improve my string writing. And when I got the uh, Fulbright, I took the bass with me. The Fulbright in Washington, they offered me the choice of flying there or taking a boat. And of course, I chose the boat. It was Leonardo da Vinci. <laughs> and uh, it was, I mean, <laughs> What a dream trip, despite the fact that you get sick on the boat. It's rocking a lot, but that's all right. It was good. And when I got to Rome, there was a former student of Mel Powell's, who was also a bass player. 
His name escapes me at the moment. He called me up and said, you ought to study with Gof- no, not Gofredo Petrassi, um, Petraki is his name. He was the principal basis of the, of the, of the radio orchestra in Rome. So he contacted Pataki and Pataki contacted me. And of course, at the, initially, I didn't want to study bass to be played. But here's a guy, a famous guy, a soloist. He's still a big time soloist. And I would go to him and take lessons. And then he would, he, he was interesting. He would call me up and tell me, so-and-so, the orchestra is playing this on this concert. You should come here. And so I remember it was a long way from where I lived in Rome. Like I get on the bus and ride forever. So I'd go up there and listen. Then I'd take a lesson there too. And, and then at, at some point when I moved to Austria, I was able to sell the bass. And that was the end of that. Now, why did you move to Austria? Oh, I guess there's another skip. <laughs> um, when I lived in Rome, I was, I guess my best friend was a Franciscan monk who lived in a house, I don't know, houses where a lot of priests live. And it was located within in the Vatican. And Mario was his name. His name was Mario Hancock. In fact, he was related, he was related to Herbie Hancock. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, which it surprised me. Mario was, he was like the bookkeeper in that house. I used to go up there periodically. Boy, they ate so well. Boy, I tell you. And Mario used to go out late at night, which was actually forbidden, to... Italian discotheques. And I began to go with them. And it was such a great nightlife, I tell you. Mario had a friend from Austria who would come down, a businessman, who would come down once a month and take him to dinner. And he invited me. So I became part of the once a month dinner. And then that Austrian friend asked me to come visit him in Graz, Austria. So I went there and he had an idea that he wanted to introduce it, introduce to me. And that was a discotheque. In fact, this guy had lived in Philadelphia for a very long time. And he was like, he was like so in love with black music. He used to run it. He used to play. He used to sing James Brown lyrics and, you know, that whole thing. So I thought he was kidding, kidding. So one evening he, he said he had a dream Well, he grew up in Graz. And his family was important there. And he said he had a dream to open a discotheque there. And he asked if I would be disc jockey. So the first thing I thought of, you know, I can't put together the idea that here I am. I studied at Yale and I got a Fulbright and he wants me to be a disc jockey. And then I eventually, once we worked out a deal, I eventually said yes. But before that, I thought, what would my parents say? Or what would they think? So that's what took me to Austria. That idea of working at the discotheque, it was well paid. In fact, I paid off my college loan through that job. And at the same time, I met a very important person at the Austrian radio in Graz. This guy was important because he ran the Styrian Autumn Festival, which was a new music festival. In fact, it was a new arts festival but it was the only festival in Austria that did new music. So I was commissioned four or five times and it was terrific. In fact, my piece again won a prize, won the first prize in that. And then also Et Nunc also won another prize for that. So that's what took me to Austria. Et Nunc was written for alto flute, bass clarinet and double bass. And that was performed at the 30th Darmstadt Fair in Kursa in August, 1980. 
I think that was the last time a piece of yours was played there. Anyway, we can hear the opening moments of that performance from the Darmstadt archives. And one of the, well, there's another thing about Austria that was interesting for me. Where I lived on the corner was a, a laundromat. And there was a woman in there who cleaned the place and she was there all the time. And I remember I did my first interview on Austrian radio and they played a piece of mine. And the very next day I went to do my laundry and she almost knocked me, knocked the door down, you know, getting to me. She said, oh, I heard what I heard it last night. It was just wonderful. It was wonderful. And I kept going through my mind. I said, this would never happen in the States. <laughs> <laughs> That's an amazing story. Alvin, how, how long did you live in Austria? Uh, from 1972 to 1985, which is, I guess, roughly 13 years. Why so long? What, you were getting pieces played? I mean, what was... You well, know? you know, yeah, I was, I was getting performances... Plus, at that point, I was, I was really learning a lot about the culture, the language. And I had friends. In fact, these friends, I still have these friends to this day. I was also attracted by the fact that Austria was near, was in Europe and near other places where I could visit festivals. That attracted me very much. So that's the crust of it, because I, li- I just like the life there. I had visited you in 1977. I was on what turned out to be Carla Blay's first international tour. And it went to Graz of all places. And I don't know oh, how yeah. I heard that you were there, but you invited me over and it was great, you know. Yeah, that was your, that was the, the band was practicing there, right? I think that was it. I, it's yeah. hard for me to remember. But all I remember was being very impressed that you spoke fluent German, which is a language I had learned for years, but was still struggling with. And maybe I'm still struggling with. 
but um, well, and, well, and that you were getting pieces played and you knew all this stuff about the culture. It was, it was pretty amazing for me. Yeah, well, that, that was really helpful to my career and also my life in general. When I returned home, you know, it was so difficult to find anybody to talk to because once you had that kind of experience, it's hard to find somebody else with a similar experience. I, you know, I had ups and downs in Austria too, but it was uh, mainly a good experience. Uh, when you lived in Graz, you lived in Graz, but you also lived in Vienna, right? Yes. And and you had a chance to visit Germany and uh, you visited Darmstadt. So you visited uh, the Internationale Ferienkurse für Neue Musik. Yes. Um, I believe for the first time in 1972. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. That's where I met Helmut Lachmann was the composer there in residence when I first went. And I liked him very much. We had a lot to talk about it. And, uh, you know, I kept up with him as much as I could after that. So how do you how do you remember your first visit? Or what do you remember about the interaction with fellow composers? You just mentioned Helmut Lachmann, um, but, you know, maybe other composers and students as well. Well, it was it was amazing to me that you had composers from everywhere. I remember there was a composer from South Africa, Latin American composers. It was very exciting because in the composition studios, we'd hear music of these people. And also, you know, in a, at other times we'd socialize and we this was this is a great experience, I thought. And yeah, at the same time, we'd look ahead about which speakers would be we coming. I remember Leggetti gave a gave a come. This wasn't in seven. I don't think this was in seventy two, but I had been there. I think three times. And then Stockhausen. And it was just very exciting for me because at this point, although I had studied and all that, it was new music. I mean, classical music still was very new to me. And to hear pieces from other cultural points of view really was enlightening. Well, we could listen to something that would give us a sense of that excitement, you know, that cultural exchange. At the 1980 Fair in Brian Fernio invited you to his composition course to discuss your piece again from 1979. I'm, I'm, my name is Alvin Singleton, and the piece that I will play for you is for Chamber Orchestra. And the title is, again, and it's, it's been written in 1979 from an idea that came to me in 1975. <laughs> I think we'll begin by hearing the music. Oh, wait, wait a minute. I, ha I have one score. Well, I volunteer. If anyone, <laughs> if anyone would like to keep score, here it is. <laughs> <laughs> Keeps keeps one down. From you, sir? From you, sir? Before the actual composition of the piece, I'd be interested simply to see what the reactions towards this 
to the reception of this idea, or the interpretation of this idea on the part of individuals might be. I have my own ideas, but I prefer not to say that at the moment. So it might be something to do with the juxtaposition of individual virtuosity with kind of organisation and more static harmony. Also the virtuo virtuosity going into kind of static. Ah, uh, yeah. The last bit I like, yeah. What do you think? Yes, that's true. I, I wanted to write a piece. Well, when I said the idea came originally in 1975, I wanted to write a piece where there were fixed elements working together alongside elements that were relatively free. And also, I wanted to create a structure that was more additive and in block form rather than connecting in an in a, in a overflowing or dovetail way. And as far as the virtuosity aspect is concerned, this is, this is something that I, I don't think that I really considered consciously. If you grow up in a situation where you hear only new music by Americans, there are certain elements of that music that were so familiar which to me is cultural. I mean, I'll give you an example of, I, I, heard, I had a performance at Carnegie Recital Hall, and I remember during that time, there was a woman from our church. She was in her 80s. She lived in Brooklyn, and she came to my concert with my parents. And she said to me afterwards that she did not understand the music, but she said there was something about it that was very familiar. And I took that to mean it's a cultural aspect. And that's what I got in Europe when I hear pieces by Germans or even English and French. They were all very different structurally and also the idea of the colors, the orchestration, just an uh, idea of just how it was put together. And one of the things I did notice was the orchestrational element. I found pieces that are, were were far out in terms of language and rhythmic aspect, but they were so well orchestrated. And I questioned, do we orchestrate like that in, in the United States? We do somewhat, but it's more kind of a big band orchestration. Mm, that's interesting. I mean, despite all the attempts of classical music in the U.S. to really distance itself from that heritage. The composition Agro 2, which was mentioned, and I think... Yes, so Agro 2 was a composition that was performed in 1972 and was actually the first composition ever to be performed uh, by a Black composer at Darmstadt. And it was performed by Siegfried Palm. And I wanted to ask you, do you have any recollections of Siegfried Palm's performance and, and the reception of your piece back then at Darmstadt? Siegfried Palm performed the piece, but the person who premiered it and the piece was written for was Ronald Crutcher, who at that time was a student of Siegfried Palm. And that piece was written when Ron, Ron and I both were at Yale. And it was written over a period of time when I'd visit him in his dorm room. And we'd go through little things that he could do in the cello. And little by little, I put it all together. And then we met again at Darmstadt. And I guess he showed the piece to Palm and Palm played it. We found out from the Darmstadt archives that this performance took the form of a live demonstration by Palm in one of the composition studios. Well, actually, why don't we listen to an excerpt from that performance right now? Uh, by the way, the word argaru comes from the Ghanaian Chui language and means to play.
where Palm at that time was very famous. Yeah, I mean, he was known for playing pieces that were deemed by many people as unplayable, such as, you know, some pieces by Bernd Alois Zimmermann or so. Yeah. I was interested because in 1974, you won the Steiner Music Prize, right? Yeah. And that was for uh, Be Natural. Yeah. Which was a very different kind of piece from Argaro too. I mean, I was looking at the score the other day, and a lot of it is quite graphic. I heard Be Natural. I programmed it at the kitchen years later, but I hadn't looked at the score. I mean, you won the Chronic Steiner Music Prize, but then I'm not sure whether they continue to play your music at Darmstadt. No, this this actually the Be Natural piece is written as a result of a, of a, an assignment for the workshop, for that particular workshop, where people had to work, make up things that had to do with graphics. That piece, you know, came to me over time and I was trying to make it make sense. And it worked very well. And in fact, to this day, it's a piece that can be played regardless of experience. Kids can play this piece. It's a droning of a B natural sound. And then there, there are um, figures that are drawn there. If you had a picture of something that related to string writing and you'd interpret that, I get I had so many performances of this piece. My publisher only recently did a new score for it, which which you've seen, right? Yeah. I remember the New England Conservatory have, has a festival for their preschool students, youngsters. And my piece, Be Natural, was on, on the program and kids were lining up to play it. They wanted a chance to interpret somebody's graphics. And then when professional people play it, it's very different because the mentality of the professional is different. The um, experience of the professional is different. But it all works because of that be natural. And going back to Siegfried Palm, I recall he tried to explain be natural to the uh, group of composers there. And he says that be natural, and he told him what be natural in English meant. Then he said in German, he says it makes no sense to say ha natural. Yeah. <laughs>
You returned to the U.S. in 1985 and became a composer in residence with the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. What impact did you stay in Europe have in terms of interest in you and your work in the U.S.? Oh, boy. <laughs> you know, the thing is that I, I was happy to be back home. And one of the, one of the problems always, as the composer said, Roger Sessions once said, he says, they give you these awards to send you away so they can forget about you. <laughs> so when I came back, I felt really good because I came back as, quote, a hero in the sense that I had something to show for it. And I came back with the job with the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. They had programmed my music. You know, I had a job to recommend performances of other composers and to look at scores. Of course, one thing you learn about it is that these scores that I had to look at had accumulated over years because at least American composers, probably European composers as well, have difficulty getting performances. So now they have composers in residence, they come in and they clean out the closets to find pieces. Of course, at that length of time, you don't really find many pieces, but I did. But I was just happy to be home. You know, I was thinking about, and it's, I guess it's somewhat related, you know, George, to, to the work that's been, that we've been trying to, you know, to do. Um, I was wondering about the global impact of the Black Lives Matter movement and uh, the silence surrounding Black composers and, and you know, extended exclusionary practices, um, which have been increasingly challenged um, since uh, summer 2020. And Alvin, I wanted to ask you, um, to what extent do you think there's a growing interest and also an awareness with regard to the work of living Black composers? Well, I, th I think there's more of, a, of an awareness now. I you know, they're complaining about it. They're mentioning it. As far as me personally, I'm concerned peripherally about it. Because, you know, once you go through almost a lifetime or trying to get performances, or trying to be, quote, noticed, you get tired. And so you try to pass it on to younger composers because the, the same problems exist all the time. People always ask, how do you get performed? And I don't want to tell them, send your music somewhere because that doesn't seem to help. I always tell, tell young people at college level or people who are writing music, don't write pieces for people who will never perform your music. You can't write a piece for, i.e., the New York Philharmonic. They don't know who you are. They don't know how you write. Write music for your friends because your friends will play it and play it and play it, and someday it'll be known. Like my piece, Agaru Number no. 2, for cello solo is still being played. In fact, it's been recorded, and cellists are discovering it still and they're playing it. Now my, my viola piece, Agaru number four, has been discovered. Now this piece was premiered at Darmstadt, but it's only been discovered, I guess the last three, four years, I get my first New York American performance. This was really amazing. Thank you so much. It was, uh, it was a great experience talking to you. Uh, I enjoyed that thoroughly. 
Thank you for taking the time talking to us. Thank you. I learned a great deal. A lot of stuff I didn't know, the double bass thing, all kinds of things. Wow. Thanks. Thanks very much for speaking with us today. Oh, thank you for your interests and your friendship. Hmm. You've inspired us all. Thank you. Thank you, Alvin. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye.